Welcome to Beneath the Wing. Just like air passing over the wing of an aircraft provides lift, the people we meet can also give us lift in life by sharing their stories of strength and success, connecting us all. Beneath the Wing explores the stories of those connected with the Minnesota Air National Guard's 133rd Airlift Wing with a little humor and learning along the way. I'm your host, Wing Command Chief Mark Legfold. In just a minute, you'll hear the re-release of the 32nd episode of Beneath the Wing. This is a pretty big episode as we get a chance to hear the story of Major Katie Lunning in her own words. Frankly, I'm still pretty awestruck when I hear the story of her heroism during our withdrawal from Afghanistan. But I'm not the only one, which is why we're re-releasing the episode. You see, on January 7th, 2023, the entire 133rd Airlift Wing and several distinguished guests will gather together to honor Major Lunning and see her awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. That's one of the awesome parts of being a part of the military, and something that makes us a special organization. We celebrate our people's successes, and we grieve our losses together as a community. So, since Beneath the Wing is a place where we share our stories of strength and success with a little learning along the way, I wanted to take a moment to provide a little background on why the Distinguished Flying Cross is such a big deal. It was established in 1926 and has been awarded to both military and civilians since being adopted. In fact, it's been used to recognize aviators who have distinguished themselves through a single act of heroism or extraordinary achievement while in aerial flight. The United States can even give the Distinguished Flying Cross to a foreign airman who has shown the same level of achievement in combat supporting our operations. Major Lunning is in good company. Charles Lindbergh, another Minnesotan, was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross in 1927. He was second to only 10 aviators who flew five aircraft on a goodwill flight from the United States to several Central and South American nations to build goodwill. Two of those aviators died during the trip due to a crash. The first woman to receive the Distinguished Flying Cross was Mary Vale Andrus for her work during World War I. Amelia Earhart received one through a special act of Congress because she wasn't in the military. In fact, the Wright brothers and Glenn Curtis and even Neil Armstrong were some of the notable civilians who received the Distinguished Flying Cross. Names like Chuck Yeager, Jimmy Stewart, Clark Gable, and George H.W. Bush are other famous people who received the Distinguished Flying Cross. And for you Star Trek fans out there, Gene Roddenberry also received it. I'd hate to miss the opportunity to say that the Distinguished Flying Cross isn't just awarded to our commissioned officers. Enlisted airmen have also been awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. Army Sergeant Julia Bringlow was a flight medic on a Black Hawk helicopter in the early days of combat in Afghanistan. While evacuating a patient, she broke her leg but continued to work for another 60 hours, saving another 14 soldiers from the battlefield. Chief Master Sergeant Dwayne Hackney a United States Air Force pararescueman received four Distinguished Flying Crosses for his heroism during the war in Vietnam. He's the most highly decorated enlisted person, and by the way, flew over 200 combat missions, and the training complex for all of our pararescue personnel is named after him. It's located in San Antonio, Texas. Technical Sergeant Ben Kuroki was also awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross three times. He's the only Japanese-American to have served within the Army Air Force in combat in the Pacific Theater during World War II. He also served in Europe and North Africa on a B-24 before hopping aboard the B-29 in the Pacific. 
The name Alita Lutz may not be well known, but Lieutenant Lutz was a flight nurse, similar to Major Lunding, but during World War II. Lieutenant Lutz evacuated and treated over 3,500 casualties over 196 missions in and out of the combat zone. Her last mission crashed, and she was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross posthumously. The, the VA Medical Center in Saginaw, Michigan is named after her. You see, there's a story behind each of the Distinguished Flying Crosses, and you can learn more through the Distinguished Flying Cross Society at dfcsociety.org. But for now, I hope you enjoy my visit hearing the story of Major Katie Lunning that we had this summer on Beneath the Wing. Major Lunning, we're all incredibly proud of you and for the difference you made in the lives that you saved. Enjoy the episode. Joining me today on Beneath the Wing is Major Katie Lunning. She's currently a part of the Critical Care Air Transportation Team, or at least I hope I'm getting that right. She'll correct me in a second. And was recently named Chief Nurse of our 133rd Medical Group. She's also a skilled nurse who commutes up from Iowa for drill, an avid outdoors person, and our state's company grade officer of the year. For good reasons, we'll get to learn a little bit more about today. Major Lunning, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. What's a company grade officer? Uh, captain and below, so captain, uh, first lieutenant, and second lieutenant. So are you that good that a major gets company <laughs> grade officer? Tell us how I, that works. <laughs> I um, was promoted after um, I, I was nominated for company grade officer of the year, so it was just awkward timing. Great. Well done. <laughs> uh, thank you for explaining that. Um, so lots of career movement in your life story here with the National Guard. And I'll just say National Guard generically because you've been, been both a soldier and an airman. That's right. You started with us, and then something convinced you to go green and join the Army National Guard. And now, thankfully, you're back with us again. Can you kind of unpack your life story with the National Guard? How did you get here? And how did you get here here? Sure. Um, yeah, it has been probably not a very traditional route. Um, I joined after high school, right after high school. Um, I had a friend who was in, she actually joined the Army Guard, but her uncle was in the medical group in the Air Guard. And she was like, hey, I heard the Air Guard was good too. So I was like, okay, I knew nothing about it and came in and took a tour. And um, retired Chief Matt Woods was the guy that gave me the tour. I don't know, I must have liked what he had to say. So I decided to join the medical group. Um, and yeah, somewhere along the line, I was recruited by an army recruiter to come try recruiting in the army national guard. So, uh, I did that. <laughs> Learned a lot. I'm sure I did. Yeah. So I was a recruiter. I was in the army guard for four years, um, successful re recruiting. Um, and I met my husband actually there. So we were put in the same office and, uh, our NCOIC at the time, he was like, this is a bad idea, like teasing us because we were by far the youngest recruiters and I was mm -hmm. the only female. And he's like, you know, this isn't going to turn out well. And well, it did because like my husband says, I showed up one day and I've, I've just never left. So did you recruit him or did he recruit you into that relationship? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. I don't know how to answer that. I think it just kind of it started morphing just naturally. We were office partners and in recruiting, you spend a lot of time together. Um, we drove a lot together, yeah. and we just became really good friends. And like, we don't have an official date. I don't think he ever was like, "Hey, do you want to go for dinner?" I think we just—I don't know. He had a dog, and I really like dogs, and it just kind of came to be. <laughs> okay, so the dog was the recruiter in that. I think it was. Yeah, uh, his name was Moose, and I'm going to say it's Moose's. Yeah, 
we'll stick with that. <laughs> yeah. So eventually um, you left the Army National Guard. I did. The, um, the SURF actually stood up in Minneapolis. Okay, so and SURF is? It is the acronym within an acronym, um, and it is the CBERNY, um, Chemical, Biological, Nuclear, um, Explosive, high-yield explosive, I had to think about it. So it's a C-Bernie um, Enhanced Response Force Package. And the R is radiological. Thank you, yes. I was like, I'm missing a number or a letter there. Yep. Um, so the surf was stood up in Minneapolis at the time, and Chief Woods was there, and my old medical group friends, uh, Master Sergeant Brown Jagger, all the people that I had known when I was originally in the Air Guard, yep. were now in the surf deal. I knew that I wasn't going to be in the Army Guard forever. I wanted to go back to the Air Guard. I knew I wanted to finish school for nursing, and it just it fit very naturally to go back to the medical group. And they took me back, thankfully, um, and I finished nursing school and became a nurse in the med group. So when you left the Army National Guard, you came back to the, the Army National Guard. Our recruiters for both the Army and the Air National Guard are full-time people. That's correct, yep. You left the full-time workforce and came back to the Air National Guard as a traditional Yes. Uh, a traditional airman. Yep. One week in a month. Yep. The rest of that time, were you dedicated to going to school full-time? I did. I went to school full-time. I had the post-9-11 GI Bill for the active duty that I did. Um, so that was helpful. And I went to Bethel and finished my nursing degree at Bethel. Finished that? Yep. Working with the surf. Yep. Um, I did surf for about nine years. Um, really loved the surf. I have had some of the best training opportunities you know, hands down that people on the civilian side wouldn't get to do. I've been to St. Louis and the Sea Stars program where you get to do really cool hands-on care um, at their trauma program. Rush in Chicago, really cool hands-on medical training, riding in ambulances, saw an open chest in the ED. Um, so really, really cool training experiences that the surf has given me. And I was at a training actually when I got called um, and said, hey, you know, they're going to put a CCAT in Minnesota, have you ever heard of that? And I was like, no, what's that? And they said, we need a critical care nurse to do CCAT. Do you want to try? I literally knew nothing about it. So C-C-A-T, yes. it's not a look at that cat over yeah. there. <laughs> exactly, it's, yeah. It's a CCAT. Yep. It's a totally, it's a similar but different mission to what the surf team is. And the surf is more of a, um, after a huge emergency, they show up with a lot of medical capability mm -hmm. and help people domestically mm -hmm. in the United States recover from that. Correct. Yep. Yes. Yep. CCAT's so different. It is very different. Okay. It's um, much more in the AE, the aeromedical evacuation realm. Um, so even though I'm with the med group, CCAT traditionally, when you're deployed, you're assigned to the AE or the aeromedical evacuation group. So um, very different world. Um, I had very little experience on airplanes before. And the so a CCAT, if you want me to go into kind of what that is. So yeah. critical care air transport team. Um, it's a three-person team, and it's a physician. And the physician has to have a background in pulmonary critical care, uh, emergency physician, anesthesiologist, um, and certain surgeons, like general surgeons, trauma surgeons. So it can't just be um, a family prac or dermatologist. Um, not that they're not necessary, but it has to have those critical ICU type skills. Okay. Um, and then a critical care nurse. You have to have a certain amount of hours as a critical care nurse and be certified, a CCRN uh, certified critical care nurse. Um, and then a respiratory therapist. So it's that three-person team. Pretty specialized. It is very specialized. Um, and it's to provide ICU-level care on an aircraft is why it was um, created. So you are caring for the most critically injured or critically ill patients um, in route care. So usually picking them up 
from a hospital of some kind, flying them to a higher echelon of care. How is that different? And here at the 133rd, we have, we've got these great planes. The C-130s mm -hmm. have so much capabilities, including we can care for passengers on the plane. And we have an organization on base. That's their sole job, mm -hmm. the, the Aeromeds, like you yeah. had referenced, right? How does the CCAT differ from that particular mission? Yeah, so the Aeromeds, um, to put it in most civilian terms, um, AE takes care of your med surge patients. So they are stable, non-critical. They can be acute, but they are stable, non-critical. So What's acute mean? Like a, an acute, fast injury, like a broken okay. leg, um, um, a disease, you know, they can be sick, they could be, but they would be very stable. Okay. Um, versus a critical care patient would be on all your life life support machine that you picture. So, um, or unstable where, you know, over the course of a flight, they could get worse. So they need that um, specialized team to care for them. But picture your ICU patient on the vent, on a monitor, suction, chest tubes, you know, the whole whole wrapped up deal would be a, a typical CCAT type patient. And they work with AE though, because AE is the experts on the plane. So AE sets up and configures the airplane. So CCAT has to have a close relationship with AE. Yeah. Um, so that the plane is set up correctly, you know, they want to be aware of the patients and what you might need. Um, so it really is a team between them. Okay. I've flown a mission with the Aeromeds, a yeah. training mission, and inspiring and awesome. They can take a bare plane <laughs> and set it up for patients and then fly a mission and then take it all apart and get their patients off to the next level of care provider. Yeah you kind of integrate into that. You just show up with your equipment and your patient. You don't have to set the plane up. Right? Exactly. Okay. Yep. And they're experts at it. You know, like you saw, they, they throw, they know, oh, how many? And they just put it together so quick. It, it is very impressive to watch them configure a plane. So you're a team of three people, very, very experienced and uh, is narrowly focused, an yeah. okay term to use. Yeah. Um, narrowly focused. How many patients can you care for on a plane, just your team of three? Generally, they say three patients. Okay. Um, there isn't a hard, fast rule, um, but generally three, um, like fully, you know, needing all your equipment, generally, I would say three. Okay. So you mentioned that you had to have so many hours of critical care mm -hmm. experience. You didn't get all that in the guard, right? No, I worked um, on the outside. So I worked at the VA in their SICU. Uh, surgical Intensive Care Unit. Thanks. Okay. I, I don't do medical acronym really good. So, and, uh, you know, I hopefully not a lot of the people listening, otherwise they're going to catch me in some medical faux pas today. But, um, okay. Uh, with the VA? At the VA, yes. All right. How long have you been with the VA? I started the VA in 2010. Okay. Yep. And I love the VA system. Tell me why. Um, I've never worked anywhere where they were so, everything is about veteran-centric care. So from their values to how they talk, even in their emails and how they address problems or safety issues, everything is really focused on veteran-centric care. Um, you know, why are we doing this process? Well, because it's better for the veteran. You know, they really take feedback um, from the veterans and even how they, like, build hallways. I mean, it, it really is. They focus everything on this veteran-centric. And it, it's not perfect. I'm not saying, you know, it's heaven on earth. Nowhere is. But mm -hmm. um, I really think at the core of it, the leaders and the people that work there are really, truly care about the veterans. 
So doing critical care for veterans mm -hmm. at the VA in Iowa. Yep. You've lived in Iowa now for how many years? It'll be four years, I think, next month. Okay. And yep. you, did you start up here in the Twin Cities with the VA? Yes, I'm from Minnesota. So okay. um, I started here at the Minneapolis VA. And then when we moved to Iowa, they had an opening at the Des Moines VA. So I was able to go there. Great. Mm -hmm. um, what is that like doing critical care for our veteran community? Um, I love it. I, you know, it, it doesn't matter if that person was in for a year or 20, they have given something back to their community. So I'm very proud to be able to serve them now. You know, they come from a variety of backgrounds. They're a very specialized population. Um, our aging veterans now, you know, we're kind of out of the World War II, which is sad. We don't get a lot of the World War II veterans anymore. So we're moving into our very few Korean and now very heavily Vietnam era veterans. And they come with a very specialized background um, from their experiences and just what life was like, you know, as they were becoming young adults and their military experiences. So I love that specialized population and just the opportunity that, yeah, no matter, you know, whatever your life was, at some point you gave back to your country. Mm -hmm. So I'm happy to help them. Do you get to swap stories? I mean, you're a, you're a major in the Air National Guard and these vets come in and you, <laughs> you get to share, hey, you know, I'm still serving now. What kind of stories do you share with them? They, um, I try to keep it quiet just because I want the focus to be on them. Um, sure. But at the VA, they have us wear on our ID badges if we're a veteran or not. So it says that I am. Oh. Um, so they always ask about it. And oh, the World War II stories are the best. Um, just every, you know, things I probably shouldn't talk about and recorded that these guys will tell me. And, you know, just so cute. They're their life experiences. And I mean, I have literally met somebody that was in Normandy. You know, I still get goosebumps when I think about him and, yeah. he, you know, he's passed, but he literally was on the beach in Normandy, you know, and I've met someone that was in the rice paddies in Korea and just, you know, these things that just seem historical or, you know, but these are real people and there was their real experiences. Yeah. Real yeah. people with, with real stories. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. You've gotten to take all that critical care experience and seeing people in the maybe some of their most needful times of, of their life where they're either there's pain or they're suffering or an injury or something. And you've gotten to apply that into that CCAT mission. Mm -hmm. um, normally when we talk about the Air National Guard or the National Guard, we talk about our training what we go through to prepare to do our job someplace else and, and go through it and be mentally and physically and spiritually and emotionally prepared for that. You've gotten recently to put all of that into practice. About a year ago, mm -hmm. about a year ago now, yeah. you were deployed. Mm -hmm. And what you thought was our normal deployment, <laughs> whether it's just going to be taking care of a couple people that get injured mm -hmm. here and there, turned into something pretty real, really, really fast. Yeah. Talk us through that time in your life and, and share what you can um, yeah. going in and being part of that retrograde from Afghanistan. Sure. Um, yeah, it was a shortfall opportunity for a CCAT deployment to Al Udeed. That basically means you get called and say, hey, somebody backed out and we need somebody to fill in, right? Exactly. Okay. Yep. Um, I'm new to CCAT. I just finished my training in 2020, um, and this was the summer of 2021. So I was like, this is a great opportunity. Um, commander supported it. 
And I joked, um, I was talking to Colonel Nelson, my commander on the way to the airport. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to the Qatar vacation. You know, they've got an Olympic sized pool everyone tells you about. And he's like, you know, I don't wish ill on anyone, but hopefully you get a couple interesting flights so you can get the experience. I was like, oh yeah. Um, I was there three weeks when um, the Taliban was taking over Afghanistan uh, very rapidly. Um, and we knew and were told that we were going to be involved. Um, so yeah, very quickly went from hoping to get a few flights to gain a little experience to, I mean, you're going into a very hostile, dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. um, and we started going right away um, when we were called up and we were, so we had two teams in Qatar. We had two CCAT teams. So two doctors, two nurses, and two RTs. Okay. So that's six people. Six people. Yep. With, so, with my enlisted math, that's yes, about right. <laughs> I don't do math in public, so that's about the extent I do too. Okay. Um, the nurse fell off her Peloton, like the most LUD thing that can happen. She fell off her Peloton the day before all of this started, and she tore her ACL, MCL, and PCL, which is basically like everything in your knee to keep your knee together, tore it all off. Um, so she could hardly walk, much less fly. So she was not allowed to fly. One RT, his father passed from COVID. So he had to fly back to the States um, for emergency leave. So that left two doctors, one nurse, and one RT. Um, another main difference between CCAT and AE and pilots and other flight crew is that um, CCAT does not get crew rest. So crew rest is you fly for a certain amount of hours, and then you have to have a certain amount of hours break. That does not apply to CCAT. So when we started doing back-to-back -back missions, me and the RT just had to go back-to-back-to-back, -to -back -to -back basically. Um, a mission from Al-Udeed to Afghanistan and back takes about 20 hours. And we'd be back for maybe a couple, and we'd have to go right back again because there's only one RT and one nurse. Mm -hmm. So very physically um, tiring. Okay. And if I'm recalling earlier, you said that one team can manage about three patients. Yeah. How many patients were you managing on those flights? We would average six to eight. Um, and not all of them were intubated. Um, we had a lot of OB um, pregnancies, um, children with special needs. Um, so it was a wide variety. And then AE would have their patient load too. Sure. So AE would be taking theirs. And then um, we would try to fit in as many um, refugees as possible, as many people trying to leave um, Afghanistan, we were told, allow them on the plane, you know, because that was our mission too, was to help them and help them escape because that was the deal that we made, um, was that we were going to help everyone leave. So the patients that you were caring for primarily were U.S. citizens that were stationed there, or were they also... Uh, being evacuated, refugees. Also refugees, correct. Okay. Yep. And if I'm not using the right term, yeah, correct no. me on these. Okay. Yep. yep. All right. So language barrier? Uh, yes, um, but there was almost always somebody present who could speak English. Okay. Um, there, you know, there's such a wide range. You know, you have the people that live very much in the mountains and are very, um, you know, they're just Afghanistan. That's what you think of. You know, they don't speak English. And then you have the people who lived in Kabul that were city business people, and they spoke perfect English. Okay. So there was almost anyone that would be like, who speaks English? Someone would come and help you. Okay. Um, but yes, there was definitely a language barrier quite a bit. Plane was full? Always very, very full. All right. Um, and keeping in mind, too, like, it was like a war going on in the city between 
you know, the, there was just lots of fighting happening in the city. So yep. a lot, the people we were evacuating were gunshot wounds and blast injuries. And it was, um, you know, very much what you would expect a, a wartime CCAP mission to be pulled out intermixed with the poor pregnant lady who's about to give birth and yep. these special needs kids that they're just trying to fly out so that they can keep receiving their medical care. And it was, yeah, just a wide, wide variety. Of all the training and all the time that you've spent as a critical care nurse, did you at any time during that say, I just don't have the skills to deal with all this, and yet you were still dealing with it? Or <laughs> did you just, were you just on auto, autopilot and doing doing good things? Um, no, I mean, I think if I, if I didn't think that I would be, it would be scary because you want to make sure that you're, you know, you're, you know what you're doing. Honestly, it all felt good. Like I, everything was going fine. Um, the moment I, I did have that moment though, and it was after the suicide bomber and we got flown back, um, and we're in, in the hospital and we had kind of developed a relationship with, okay, I'm going to use another acronym here, with SOST, which is Special Operations Surgical Team. Okay. And they were Norwegian SOST, actually. And they were on the ground, and we had developed a good relationship with them. They would give us handoff between patients, you know, because at flying back to back to back, being the only nurse, you know, they saw me all the time. Right. So when we landed again, we were helping them triage, and then one of them grabbed me. He's like, this is the patient you're going to take. And he took me to a back hallway. And I rounded the corner and it was a 15 month old. And I was, I have done adult VA <laughs> surgical ICU care yep. um, my entire life. And here was a neuro of all things, another field that I don't do a lot of, a neuro 15 month old boy. And I'd really like, I was like, oh man, like my heart just sank. And I was like, this is not <laughs> what, you know, but I have had a pediatric training. I have had the training, yeah. Um, and yeah, we just dove right in. You know, you take that moment of get your breath back and, all right, tell me what I need to know. Yeah. And he, after he gave report and we're leaving, he's like, you happy? You happy? And he gives me a thumbs up. And I said, no, <laughs> I'm not happy. And he gave me a thumbs up and just smiled as we walked away. <laughs> uh, I, I, can you talk us through, you had to go pick up this young 15-year-old from the Norwegian hospital, mm -hmm. which was not on base or on base? It was off base. How'd you get there? We ran. <laughs> How far? A couple blocks. Okay. Yeah, about two, two and a half blocks. All right. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm thinking running is around a track or in a field someplace where there's nobody else around because I don't want people to watch me run. <laughs> what was the environment like where you were running to, a, to and from this hospital? It was rough. Um, so the airplane would land... Um, at the airport, and we had to get through a gate. And you can see, um, I mean, the news, I think, did a good job of, um, you can tell the chaotic environment. So you have a pretty good idea of what that was like at the gates. Um, Marines and uh, soldiers were doing their best to keep people in somewhat of a line, but they, they were clamoring to get through the gates. They had to open the gates for us to get through. Um, we did not have security. It was literally just us. So there wasn't anybody with us. It was me, my RT, and a doc. And we had um, uh, E4 with an M4. Otherwise, we just had our M9s. And we would have our litter, which is like your stretcher, yeah. and a NATO gurney, which is your wheels. And we had all of our equipment set on that litter that was on wheels. So we would push that. And then we had our backpacks with, our, with what we wanted in them. 
and we would just run to the hospital and try to kind of not maintain eye contact and just keep your head down and go. But like, yeah, the Taliban was driving around and trucks next to us and the Taliban was parked outside the hospital watching us go in and then they'd have to open the gate up and push all those people back um, every time we would come through. Sure. And you have to go back and forth for every patient. Right. So, because there's only one team, so we'd bring them back to the aircraft, give a quick report to AE and they would help watch. We would usually leave the doc behind at that point mm -hmm. and then the RT and the nurse would go back and get the other few patients. How many times would you do that run on one flight? Um... Probably six. Were you not scared the sixth time because you were used to it? <laughs> I mean, eventually you do kind of get used to it, but um, at the same time you don't because it's it's different every time. But we knew the route we were taking, and I mean, you can't really dwell on it. My RT and I, we would we just kind of created this banter between us, and it yeah. was like scary stuff, scary stuff you can't control, and then we would just go, and you just had to work. So this, you were a shortfall on this. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the team that you were working with. Mm -hmm. You're an, a nurse in the Air National Guard. Mm -hmm. Was your doctor and your RT also National Guard? Were they active duty? Were they reservists? My The doc was uh, um, active duty and the RT was guard. Okay. So pretty well-formed team by the end of this, but how did you develop a rapport professionally when you first got together with swimming in the Olympic pool? Right, <laughs> And that is what we did. Okay. Um, you know, it was just a very general, you know, get to know you stuff at first, like where are you from? What yeah. do you do? Um, I honestly think our rapport and everything that we developed was really in this situation. Yeah. Um, for one thing, it happened so quickly after I arrived. They had already been there um, for because I came mid-rotation, so they had already been there. Um, but, you know, you're put in this circumstance right away, and you just kind of have to feel it out. And, um, I mean, but you also learn each other's strengths and weaknesses quickly, too. Yep. You know, and how you can help each other out and... Um, you know, kind of fit into that team. And that's part of CCAT training, though, is um, CCAT doesn't train you to be an RT, a nurse, or a doc. You already have to have those experiences. A lot of CCAT training is working as a team. So group dynamics, team dynamics, and all of these scenarios. So because they kind of know as a CCAT person, you probably will be thrown into a weird situation. Sure. So how do you quickly develop those team dynamics? What's one thing that you took away from that that would help anybody in any job? Communication, probably. Okay. Um, clear communication. Um, closed loop communication. Don't um, assume that they know what you're talking about is probably the biggest thing. And ask for clarification if you don't know. Um, yeah, I think clear communication is just kind of what saves it. Okay. You, while you were doing all of these runs and back and forth, no crew rest? Nope. I assume you got a chance to maybe sleep on the plane after you had dropped patients off and you were on your way back. Yep. But other than sleeping on a plane, C-17s are super comfy, right? Yeah. <laughs> when you're that tired, they are. But they were they were turning these mm -hmm. missions really quickly. Yes. Normally, they would check the plane completely, clean the plane out. Um, were they doing that, or were they literally dropping and going right away? No, they were very much dropping and going. Um, those planes were filthy um, because there wasn't time to deep clean. Yeah. Um, and you had people that had been running through the mountains for days, you know, on these planes. They'd never been on a plane before. Mm -hmm. Put them on the floor, you know, just 
then you had us making medical messes, everything. So no, they, they were messy planes, toilets overflowing. Um, yeah, they churned them out back to back to back. Yep. And you're exhausted and tired mm-hmm. and still doing these missions for how many hours total nonstop? The longest I was awake was well over 60 hours. Um, I've tried to go back and count, um, but it's hard, but it was probably high 60s that I was awake. Okay. And a nap here and there on the plane, I imagine. Not in that one. So that one, there was no time to sleep in the 60 plus hours. All right. Um, But otherwise, when the other missions, yeah, we would get little rest. Okay. You... Finally got done with the last flight. Mm -hmm. Did you know that it was the last flight when you left? We did. How did you know? Um, Because it was our withdraw day from Afghanistan. Okay. And our mission was for the final flight. Uh, We knew that they were pulling everybody out. The 30th was the day that the U.S. had agreed to leave. Mm -hmm. And this was on the 29th because they decided to leave one day early. Um, We knew it was our final flight. And we were to provide medical support because they had pulled... SOST, the Special Operations Surgical Team, they had pulled the medical support out. Okay. So there, we were the only medical support. And we were to wait there until everybody got off, um, and then we were the last ones out. So we were the last plane up and out. And then the pilot announced over, he's like, we're the last plane. We just left Afghanistan airspace. So... What went through your mind in that moment, or were you busy caring for customer or caring for customers, caring for patients? Um, it was very surreal. Um, you know, I've been in 19 years, so my entire life has been at the Afghanistan mission. Yeah. Um, I was just out of high school after 9-11, and that's been my adult life. And then to be leaving Afghanistan, it was like, you couldn't kind of wrap your head around it. We're going to unpack that just a little bit more. <laughs> um, but your time as an Army recruiter, we're going to mirror that a little bit. We're going to hear a message from Tech Sergeant Nicole Huesner, one of our production recruiters. Your story is absolutely fantastic, and I'm looking forward to getting back. But in the meantime, I hope you're all sticking around uh, when we come back with Major Katie Lunning. Do you participate or are you involved in a camp, race, marathon, tournament, or any event that would be good exposure to potential applicants? My name is Sergeant Nicole Huesner, and I'm a recruiter with the Minnesota Air National Guard. There is a program, We Are All Recruiters, where where individuals may be granted pay if they participate in an event that directly enhances the recruiting mission. All airmen, regardless of their Air Force specialty, are recruiters. If you're interested in more information on how to apply, please contact me, Sergeant Nicole Huesner, at 612 713-2091. Again, 612-713-2091. Thanks, Sergeant Huesner. Welcome back to Beneath the Wing. And uh, Major Lunning, thanks for sticking around for a little bit longer. Of course. Appreciate it. We've been talking about the mission retrograding from Afghanistan and your role in that. Mm -hmm. Long, long days with very little to no sleep whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure the last thing on your mind was, gee, I wonder how things are being perceived outside of where I'm at, because you're just kind of focused on taking good care of patients yeah. and getting the mission done. Um, 
when the mission was over mm -hmm. and you called home, uh, your husband is in the army. Uh, how was he with all this that was going on, knowing where you were, maybe not exactly what you were doing? He, um, I called him and I told him, I'm like, I just got back from Afghanistan. And he goes, oh, <laughs> and he just kind of left it at that. Um, no, I mean, he let me tell him what we're doing and, you know, good listener and, you know, it was just kind of like, yep, yep, and very understanding. Um, you know, he, he's been Army for 20 years, and he was in Iraq back in 2003. He was an MP um, with 101st is who he went with. So he's very realistic of what, um, you know, situations can be. And But he's also stoic. I mean, he's a sergeant major in the Army, and he's just <laughs> he didn't let a lot of emotion fly. Um, I had a good friend call him while I was gone, was like, are you freaking out? And he said, no. He's like, trust the process. Like, they, they have a plan. <laughs> so he handled it well. Um, it made a very nice homecoming when I got home. And sure. um, yeah, so I think I was more worried about my parents, I think, knowing what I was doing than Josh knowing what I was doing. Yeah, yeah. How were your parents when you called and let them know? Um, they, well, I, I waited towards the end more, you know, a little text here and there, but more at the end than yeah. I would call and told them everything that was going on and they were good. Um, you know, they didn't freak out, but I think they were very glad that we were back and, um, not flying so much. They, um, again, they didn't see that coming either when I, uh, went to Qatar. So certainly they were definitely watching the news. So <laughs> I'm sure. And they knew that you were flying back and forth or, yep. okay. Yep. All right. And on the last plane out of Afghanistan on the last day. Yeah. You were, at some point, they said, hey, write down the stuff that you've been doing and yeah. do a little bit of journaling and um, take some notes. Did your mindset shift at some point when you were writing down your experiences or you're doing something like this where you're just recalling all of that mm -hmm. and you, you think about the totality of what you actually accomplished in those with that team um, and the people that you cared for and lives that you saved. Where's your mind at with this right now, if you don't mind? Yeah. Um, you know, it kind of changes every time I think about it, honestly. Um, and I'm glad that I did take notes the entire time. Um, I took them on my phone, and that's what I would do on the downtime on the airplanes when we were flying without um, patients, is I would journal, like, what day it is, what we're doing. And I would journal my thoughts at the time, too, which I'm actually really grateful that I would do. So it wasn't just the facts. It'd be like, I'd vent my frustrations or my concerns or what I was feeling, and that's helped, too, when I go back and read those. I was like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, you know. Um, and it is helpful to look back and remember because, you know, your memories, you know, they change a little bit. So it's kind of like, oh, yeah, we did do all that. And thinking about, like, oh, yeah, that family that we did get moved or that person that I got reunited or, you know, so it was it is very helpful to kind of go back and um, read that because you can get bogged down in the bad things, you know, and the hard things, but it's like when you go back and actually realize you did what I want to do as a nurse. And the mm -hmm. reason I like being as a nurse is to help people. And then reading all those notes again, I was like, okay, I really did help people. When you were training to be a nurse in at Bethel, <laughs> I'm sure this was the farthest thing from your mind, but again, people become nurses, people go into the medical practice, medical field to care for people mm -hmm. normally. Yeah. That, that's a good motivation to have if you're going into a, a caring for. Did you expect a um, this high level of tasking at any point during your training at Bethel? 
Definitely not at Bethel. Yeah. Um, you know, I was just trying to survive, learning to be a new nurse at Bethel yeah. um, and what it meant to be a nurse and the responsibilities. Um, even thinking of myself as a brand new ICU nurse when I started in the ICU, that was so overwhelming just to be a brand new ICU nurse. And then to think of how far I've come in the last 10, 12 years um, and be able to confidently and competently do ICU care on an airplane. You know, I've worked really hard at it. It's... Um, you know, I've studied a lot and done a lot of training um, and worked really hard at being competent at it. Um, so it is pretty cool that all that time and effort was worth it. So now with all that time and mm -hmm. all that experience and all the things that you've learned, and hopefully I, I don't know how you take notes on a phone and then turn it <laughs> into something that you can read and remember later. Uh, but I hope all that stuff is saved and you can go yeah. back and recall that. Now you've been named the chief nurse for our wing. And you get to kind of set this strategic direction for the training and the preparation of all the nurses in our medical group. <laughs> That's kind of a deal, right? It is. <laughs> um, so going into this organizational leader, what, how are you going to take what you learned and the experiences that you had flying these people in their darkest of hours mm -hmm. and most difficult situation of their lives how are you going to use that to influence the nurse corps here at our wing? Yeah, that's a really deep, good question. I, I would hope it was part of your job interview, but okay. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, and that, I think it's something that goes beyond skills because I think what made the a successful mission in Afghanistan is like you talked about the resiliency, um, being mentally, physically, spiritually, being all of those things prepared is what made it su successful. Because you can learn the skills, but to do them um, under pressure, when you're tired, um, you know, when you're at your worst too, and to still be able to perform, you have to be ready to do that. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, you know, we can teach skills to anybody, but as a group of nurses in the med group, like the surf, God forbid that mission ever were to be used, they would be tired. They would be exhausted. That would be hard, hard work. So prepare yourself now of how you would do that how you know picture yourself in that environment i could have never pictured myself flying people out of afghanistan you know as the city's crumbling that just wasn't never in my thought right. but i knew that i'm a military member and so i knew that i didn't join the girl scouts you know i knew that being part of the military means that i was accepting some risk in doing this job as a sea cat um so i think as a you know as a surf nurse as an herbs nurse you may be in a situation that's dangerous or you're seeing tough patients and you're working really hard long hours. So picture yourself in that role now so that when it does happen, um, you've thought about it and you've prepared. You brought up something regarding the training and the work that we did in that mission and preparing the nurses to do that. Our, the way we left Afghanistan has been criticized mm -hmm. very openly. You are one individual as a part of a three-person team mm -hmm. flying on a plane packed with people. Mm -hmm. What is the best of our country that you saw on those missions? The care for humanity, 100%. Um, those people leaving Afghanistan were at their worst. Um, I don't think... I've never seen people that have run through mountains for days, leaving everything behind them to get on an airplane to fly who knows where. They didn't know where they were going. All they knew was that they were getting away from the Taliban and out of Afghanistan. 
they were physically in really rough shape. Um, they had been beaten, they had been rocked, they had been shot at, rubber bullets, real bullets, everything, running for their lives, and they left everything behind, the clothes on their back. A lot of them didn't have shoes because they had run out of their shoes. I had a guy that had zip ties on his hands because he had been captured by the Taliban and broke free and had his hands still zip tied that he got on the plane. Mm. You know, I mean, these people are at their worst and the Americans, it doesn't matter the history of what's, we're helping people. You know what I mean? So putting aside yeah, the criticisms, the feelings, you're allowed your personal opinions. That's totally fine. But everybody on that base pitched in to help those people. We had people bringing food. We brought in t our own clothes, our own shoes to give to them. So you had people from all over the base, all different jobs, not just medical, that were showing up with their own clothes and shoes to give people, um, serving food all hours of the night, you know, from every job and everybody, because all anybody cared about at that time was just helping other human beings. When you think about our organization, you know, a military organization, people think of, you know, doing a war, mm -hmm. accomplishing that. Mm -hmm. When you think about the people that are in our organization as a part of the Department of Defense, mm -hmm. part of the Air Force, part of the National Guard, is that sense of compassion a common theme that you see in our people? Here at the 133rd or just in You've the military? you met people from around the world as a part of our military. Yeah. Um, honestly, yes. Um, not to say they didn't have opinions, but when it came down to we're going to help people. Yeah, they're, they're going to help people no matter their political, you know, we could be on opposite ends of our political spectrum, but these people needed help and everybody just helped. Tough mission. Mm -hmm. Glad you were there leading people doing that. Um, you are, um, You've been a nurse for a good long time. We've been talking heavy stuff for a good long time. You're also an avid hunter. <laughs> in fact, you've been featured in a, I, I hear there's a picture out there of you with something that you shot. I'm not sure. How did you get into hunting? <laughs> um, my husband, uh, when we first met. So my family, um, you know, hunting isn't foreign, but my husband loves to hunt. So it was like, hey, let's go out and hunt. I was like, is the dog a part of this picture too? Absolutely. Okay. So Moose, it was a pheasant hunter, right. and yep. So we Moose, yeah, it all comes back to Moose. All right. And you're still an avid hunter. <laughs> yep. Who likes it more now, you or your husband? Um, probably him. Um, he drives a lot of the hunting um, trips and everything that we do. It's kind of his realm. Um, I can see him retiring someday and trying to hunt full-time if at all possible. Great. Yeah. But no, we still have two um, German short hair pointers, so we still have the hunting dogs. Okay, so are you mostly a bird hunter? No, I'd say mostly whitetail. I'd say heaviest okay. on whitetail, um, and then we have the two dogs. Do the whitetail down in Iowa mostly corn-fed? Yeah. Uh-huh. Hence the hunting magazine picture. Well, all right then. <laughs> <laughs> so you're more more into the whitetail. Yeah. Right? Yep. What's the most interesting thing that you've ever hunted? <laughs> a mountain lion. Really? Mm-hmm. Where? Um, it was Arizona, actually. So okay. right where Arizona meets Nevada. Yep. Um, we stayed in Nevada, but we were hunting actually in Arizona. Um, it was a very cool experience. I, I love dogs, and they use walker and blue tick hounds. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, got really close to the mountain lions, did not get one, um, but it was still a really cool experience. My husband got a mountain lion a few years back. Awesome. But, yeah. Wow. Um, is that what you do to unwind? <laughs> um, no, I not normally. No, I actually like yoga and Peloton. Okay. I have a Peloton, so I've joined that cult. As long as you don't have the cult of Peloton. <laughs> As long as you don't tear the ACL, yes, I <laughs> MCL, I don't know all the CLs that you can tear on a Peloton. But yes. Okay. <laughs> and um, do you cook what you hunt? We do. Okay. Yeah, that's actually very important to us. It's all kind right. of a philosophy with hunting. Um, yes, we enjoy getting the big deer, but we cook and eat everything that we hunt. So right. if we're not going to eat it, my husband ate the mountain lion. Like, it is very, we don't just hunt to hunt. Certainly. Um, it's a respect thing, so we really do. If we're going to hunt it, um, we will eat it. All right. I've never eaten cat, but okay. your big cat is, <laughs> would be okay. Is there a good way, what's the, I'm sorry, what's the best way to cook deer? Um, I honestly just like grilling it, but okay. we marinate it. Um, so making sure that it's marinated, um, I think, is key. And... I like Iowa or southern Minnesota deer better than northern Minnesota deer because I mm -hmm. think it's that corn-fed. Being somebody that raises corn uh, in his spare time, I am all in favor of people <laughs> that like to come and hunt the, the things that are sure. eating the, our profits. <laughs> That's a good thing. Okay, so I know you have listened to the podcast before, and you didn't say you were really looking forward to the short answer part, but just to go over the rules, mm -hmm. I'll ask you a, a question, and the first thing that pops in your head this answer, don't think about it too long. No T-charts or pie charts or pluses <laughs> or minuses on this. I already know the answer to the first question. Are you a dog person or a cat person? Dog. Best science fiction movie series? Is Jurassic Park sci-fi? I would go with that. Yeah. I hope those dinosaurs aren't real. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Musical instrument you most wish you could play? Piano. Hawkeyes or cyclones? <laughs> Hawkeyes. <laughs> Are you a spring person or a fall person? Fall. Favorite non-work activity other than hunting? Um, anything with my dogs. So okay. hiking, walking, um, hunting, or I guess that's hunting with them. Um, but yeah, something with my dogs. Great. What's your go-to karaoke song? Don't Stop Believing. All right. <laughs> Are you a Journey fan? I like 80s a lot. Best hair band from the 80s? Motley Crue. Good answer. Were you studying ahead? No. That one was quick. All right. Okay, so you are... Motley Crue was an okay band in the 80s. I, I got to give you that one. Still touring. Yes. That's a long time to be out there. Okay. Uh, so back in 1861, here's a nursing question for you. Mm -hmm. This is not a short answer because it's a long question. Okay. Dorothea Dix. Know her? Mm -mm. Okay, good. Uh, she was appointed as the superintendent of nurses for the Union Army during the Civil War. Okay. She set all the qualification and training standards for the nurses who served on the battlefield. Before the war, she worked tirelessly to advocate for good uh, care, especially for people with mental illnesses, and she was credited with a lot of reforms in that field. Um, she was uh, well known to have trained compassionate and very highly competent nurses on the battlefield who cared for both the Union and the rebel soldiers if they were wounded. 
I'm going to assume that, having served during the Civil War, she probably enjoyed a little bit of whiskey, which was the drink of choice, especially for the enlisted folks. And since you were enlisted, <laughs> we're just going to stick with that. If you were sharing a drink of whiskey together with Dorothea Dix, what would you both agree upon as the necessary characteristics to qualify as a nurse both then and now? Oh, that's a good one. It's, I told you it was a long question. Yeah. Um, and I do like whiskey, so that would be good. Okay. Um, she sounds fascinating, so I would. I wish I could have a whiskey with her. Yeah. Um, the things that stuck out the most to me are the compassionate and competent care, because um, that translates through today. Um, very necessary. Um, I also thought it was very interesting that she cared for both sides, because that's kind of an ethical dilemma that, I mean, we still do that today, right? Mm -hmm. Um we care for people. Um, and so I, yeah, I think that that's really, really interesting that back in the civil war, she's like, you're a human, we're going to take care of you. Um, but yeah, I think that I would agree with her that competent competency and compassion, um, are the keys to a nurse. I think you both probably would have enjoyed the whiskey and having <laughs> a good conversation around that. Um, a quote from her, be of good cheer for sadness cannot heal the national wounds. When you look at all the challenges our country has faced and the people in our country have faced, especially in the last two, two and a half years, people have been secluded, locked mm -hmm. away, dealing with a pandemic, um, all the unrest, uh, the tough stuff that's going on in the world right now. What are some things that bring you good cheer? Um, family. Um, I think that's a big thing. Um, my daughter, she's eight. Um, so kind of seeing things, the world through her eyes, you know, eight-year-olds aren't bogged down by politics and opinions. And, you know, if we have to go somewhere and she wore a mask, she just did it. You know, it wasn't, oh, but you know what I mean? There's no opinion. So right. it's just like this very, this innocence I enjoy a lot being with her and her friends. And um, so that helps a lot. Um, yeah, I'd say that's probably the number one thing is just time with family and friends and Seeing that for the good that it is. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Um, you work in the VA system. It's a big system. Mm -hmm. And they're focused on veterans, which has this unifying sense of purpose. Um, what do you think the biggest challenge facing healthcare now, as you see it? And what's the fix? Oh. oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> We're going to solve this yeah. problem right now. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, from my realm, um, nursing shortage is a huge problem in healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very concerning because they we don't see it getting better soon. Um, the pandemic did a number. We had new most, they did a study and the nurses that became new nurses during COVID-19, many of them have left the field and we're unable to fill. Um, the VA normally doesn't have a hard time recruiting nurses. They have very good benefits. We have wide open positions right now. Mm -hmm. um, looking at colleges and how many people are applying, it's just, it's scary, um, the nursing shortage. So I do think, because you need someone to be at that bedside and be caring for the patients. Um, the fix for that? <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, there's lots of different opinions, whether it's, I don't know if throwing money is the answer, but um, I think a cultural change too. Um, going back to the work ethic and the caring and um yeah i don't have a good fixed answer but you can just stick with it 
Definitely. Good. Yeah. Why? I love it. I like caring for people. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I recently moved to being a nurse manager and I still feel like I'm caring for the people, but just in a different way. I can care for them by making sure that the nurses in the ICU have everything that they need to do their job, having the training, having the education, having the support, everything they need to be bedside mm -hmm. and trying to keep people as bedside as long as possible. Um, I still sneak out and try to get my hands on it as much as I can because um, I love hands-on patient care. Yeah. Um, but there's just so many aspects of nursing that you can go into. So I think it's a wonderful field. Um, I love taking care of patients. And, yeah, I wouldn't, I would, wouldn't change a thing. Well, for 19 years, you've been part of our family out here at the wing, even when you <laughs> abandoned us and went over to the Minnesota Army National Guard. But you got a great dog out of that. So That's good right. for you. <laughs> but hey, Major Lunning, thanks for joining me on Beneath the Wing. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, as always, I would like to thank Amy Lovgren for her production experience and the contributions of Master Sergeant David Gindorf, Tech Sergeant Jared Smith, and the special contributor. Uh, to our guest research major Kevin Dornan so thanks to him and now you can go and say hey why'd you give him that information but Major Lunding thanks again for joining me on Beneath the Wing. Thank you for having me. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation and tune in next time for episode 34 when I have another one of our awesome airmen here on Beneath the Wing.